This week on The Futurists, Bruce Schneier. 5G is not about you watching Netflix faster. 5G is about things talking to other things behind your back. Welcome back to another episode of The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick, and this is my co-host, Brett, Brett King. King. Yeah, I'm here. Good to see you again, Brett. And uh, welcome back, everyone, for yet another week of The Futurists, where we talk to the people who are designing, building, inventing, planning, and protecting the future. And this week, on that last note, we've got a great guest, Bruce Schneier. Bruce Schneier is a man of many hats, wearing the excellent hat today. Um, Bruce is a, is well known as a, a cybersecurity expert, and that's how I got acquainted with him many years ago. Um, he's written a number of excellent books on the subject and on related topics, but he also is an entrepreneur and a professor at Harvard University. Bruce, welcome to our show. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. We're excited to talk to you uh, because this is a big topic. You know, while everybody's been preoccupied with um, artificial intelligence. There have been a record number of hacking attacks. It seems like a, a kind of um, ever-increasing number of attacks. And we wanted to catch up with you because this seems like it's going to be a big theme going into the future. Can you give us a sense of the lay of the land these days? Like, what is uh, what is the cybersecurity landscape out there? You know, it's complex enough that I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to answer that in, in one okay. in one question. So I, mean, I guess that's your answer, right? There's a... Mm -hmm. A lot of attacks out there, uh, criminals, nation states, everything in between, yet we're all on the internet all the time, and it's mostly pretty good. So it is both good and bad, like everything else in society. There's stuff happening, but largely it doesn't affect us until sometimes it does, and then it's bad. I'm not helping, right? But the landscape's complicated, and there isn't a single thing you can point to and say, you know, here it is. Because what are you talking about? Are you talking about cars or your computer or the war in the Ukraine or anything else, right? Those yeah. are all different. Yeah, that's true. Well, actually, that's a really good point, though. So, you know, when we think of cybersecurity, we tend to think about PCs, um, I think, as a secondary afterthought. Well, maybe you do, but I don't. Well, you may not. That's true. <laughs> but then people think about their phones, but not as much, right? We're, we're careless with our phones. We we, te we tend to think of that as a phone. I'm, I'm speaking about the average person. But what we stopped thinking about is all the other things that are connected to the internet. And I think since the last time you and I spoke, that's what's changed because there are something on the order of 60 billion devices attached to the web that aren't computers or phones. And those are so-called in, uh, in fact, um, phones overtook PCs as the primary oh, yeah. internet access device a few years ago. Yeah, that happened years ago. But, but yeah, there's everything but else. I mean, cars, there's many others. All cars are connected. Yeah. And, you know, your appliances and your thermostat, anything you buy new that's at all interesting comes with an internet connection. Yeah. Even your, your coffee maker and the drone you bought and some of your toys. And right. So this is stuff from expensive cars to super cheap. And whenever whenever you buy a product that's called connected or smart, that's code word for vulnerable. Uh, that's another way to think about it. You know, your smart devices in the home are vulnerable. Yeah, about 10 years ago, we were, I think when we first met, we were talking about how the Internet of Things is just going to spread the attack surface. Has there been any success in making those Internet of Things devices more uh, hardened, more protected, uh, less less vulnerable? I mean, so the answer is yes, but we tend not to do it because it costs money. Yeah. 
if I hand you two drones or two thermostats or two coffee makers and one costs $30 more and it says, you know, added security, you're going to buy it? Probably not. Oh, so you think so, the consumers don't care? Consumers don't know enough to care. I mean, but that's that's because they are not educated in cybersecurity. Just right. like if you walked into a pharmacy and there were two of the same drugs and one was cheaper than the other, you'd buy the cheaper one. Now, you know that the FDA ensures that both of those won't kill you. But, you know, if one of them was more likely to kill you and didn't say so on the label, you're not going to know. And that's not your fault. Mm. You're not a pharmaceutical expert. You expect the government's going to keep you safe there. And the same is true for cybersecurity. The things that people buy are the cheap stuff. And the cheap stuff is less secure. So there's really an economic model here, especially when you get to things. Right? You know, the phones, we have two makers of phones and they're competing with each other on, on things like security. So both Google and Apple are doing their best. They're doing a real good job. Car manufacturers somewhere in the middle, you know, like they're doing an okay job, but, you know, I mean, Tesla has vulnerabilities left and right, and the other manufacturers do as well. But when you get to cheap things, cheap is what people are paying for. So you're not seeing a lot of, of discernment on security, and that's not to be, not unexpected. Bruce, um, one of the things that you know, obviously, we're seeing more sophisticated attacks from uh, criminals these days, uh, the ransomware attacks and so forth. But um, you know, it, moving away from IoT, one of the functional issues we have is that identity is really no longer secure in its current form. Um, you know, that, it, you know, your social security number, mother's maiden name, date of birth, this information is all exposed now due to social media and so forth. Um, and we've seen other markets try and tackle this, uh, China with their facial recognition technologies. As a result, if you look at just a simple area like payments, China is now significantly more secure than the United States when you're using a credit card online, as an example. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of this is an infrastructure issue as well as, as an approach. But uh, again, trying to get these things, uh, you know, particularly in, in markets like the US, you know, having a national approach to g digital identity infrastructure, you know, is, is a tough problem. But as we move through the next 10, 20 years with uh, increasing attack vectors with artificial intelligence and quantum computers and stuff like that, it would seem that this becomes more of a core infrastructure issue than just like you know, device manufacturing approaches. What are yeah, your identity thoughts? Identity is a tough problem. And right, remote, remote identity authentication is always hard. So in, let's say, you know, like, like pre-computers, how do you identify someone? You see them and you recognize them. It's a biometric and you recognize their right. face. Telephone appears. How do you recognize somebody? You recognize their voice. It's another biometric. Or maybe you recognize that they know things about you, right? So there's a shared history that you and I have, and we have a conversation. That history comes out, and I know it's you because only you knew that, or the way you talk. I mean, there's a lot of, of social cues we use to identify each other. You move that online, and it becomes much more formal and much really less robust. Username and password. 
is what we normally use. And lots of attacks against those. We, we, get, we get tricked into giving up our passwords all the time, whether it's phishing or a fake website or whatever it is. Or we choose lousy ones and the bad guys guess them. We move to other things. You know, I used to identify myself to my iPhone with my fingerprint. Uh, now I do with my face. Those are both pretty good, and there are, are ways to uh, to subvert that. Uh, my bank now uses username and password, and also a uh, a pin that comes to my phone. So it is also using the fact that I can get to my phone yep. as a way of authenticating me. We're really kind of just making this up and doing our yeah, best. but these are all piecemeal, right? They're like they're all we piecemeal, but honestly, we, you know, and they're... piecemeal. Piecemeal is what you get, right? It will it will yeah. never not be piecemeal. Honestly, you eating meals is piecemeal. You have lunch, you have dinner, <laughs> you have this, you have that. It's just piecemeal. Yes, life is piecemeal. That's okay. Uh, a centralized authentication authority sounds like a freaking disaster. Right? It's a single point of failure. Yeah, juicy target. It, it, yeah, it's a monster target. It's uh, it's monolithic. I mean, I don't think that's better. You open your wallet today. Right? There's no well, it is. It, I mean, it's functionally better from a payments perspective. Uh, Chinese better mobile wallets are 10,000 times safer. Today. Okay. Why do, there's no reason in the world why uh, your airline or your library or whatever card you have in your, your wallet doesn't use your driver's license as an ID. I mean, why do you have an airline free to flyer card? That, that's, why do you have a library card? Why can't they just use your driver's license? They don't. Not because they never thought of it, because it's not actually a good idea. Hmm. You want to control your own credential. Whether you are a library membership organization or an airline or a payment system, you don't want to use the centralized authentication system because then you're locked into it. You have no flexibility. This is what blockchain was all supposed to solve, right? Yeah, but blockchain's stupid. I mean, forget blockchain. Uh, I mean, we're we're talking talking like, like real answers. Uh, a federated system, right? Right. So, Consensus-based so mechanism. Makes more sense because when I get a library card, I probably show them my driver's license. Mm-hmm. I show them some utility bill to, to, uh, to verify my address. I'm making this up. I don't know. I got a yeah. library card years ago. I don't even remember how I did it. But there are some breeder to breeder documents you will have to have to show. But in the end, the library issues uses its own credential that it uses to authenticate you. It doesn't use the breeder documents. And that's the way the world's going to be forever. You're not going to have a singular ID. And I'm not convinced that China is more secure. I'm not sure where that uh, that factoid came from. But I, I Well, I can give you the numbers behind it if you're interested, but. Yeah. Who is? Yeah, I'm curious. No, well, so Al- Alipay, um, you know, here's the stats, right? So Alipay um, during Singles Day, which is their highest frequency trading uh, day, uh, November 11th, doing about 500,000 transactions per second. And according to their annual report, getting 0.0006 basis points of fraud or identity right. theft. So Whereas one, card not present... Day. Yes. Card not present is eleven point two basis points. So that that they're the numbers. Okay. So self-reported data. So we don't know if it's true, but let's assume it's true. How much of that is the uh, Chinese criminal justice system versus the inherent security of uh, the uh, the computer system? I don't know. And 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 it might be true. 
but there's a lot of reasons why it might be. I mean, but I mean, as a practitioner in that space, I would say that the key problem you've got is not it's not just identity and the criminal justice system. It's also the the vulnerability of the 16-digit card number that we use instead of, you know, having tokenized all of that and so forth. You know, we, we can look at tokenized transactions on mobile wallets and see they're significantly safer, you know, versus, you know, just typing in a card number as, as an the, example. The goal isn't of maximum safety. So Visa, MasterCard, these are for-profit businesses. They are weighing right. additional security with customer convenience. I understand that. And they're, and they're weighing losses due to profits. And if there was a security measure that, you know, that looking at the costs and benefits was beneficial, they would do it. The reason there's not more security in Visa is because they're making more money with less mm. security because there's more usage, because there's more, you know, it's more ubiquitous, whatever reasons. So when you get a system where the entity in charge of security is also the entity that pays for security failures, you get optimal solutions. An optimal solution isn't maximal security. And, and Visa shows that. And that is very much a, uh, a government, uh, government action caused that. So it's 1975 Fair Credit Reporting Act, which made credit card companies liable for credit card fraud. So instead of you, me, you or me being liable, the credit company is liable. So they are going to do what is optimal for their profit. And they have decided, and I think they have good analysis that, that says this, that more security is less profitable. So they're not going to have that. Mm. Now, right? Bruce, this is uh, way different than uh, you know security of a power plant. There's a blackout and we all suffer because right? there's a lot of externalities there. But in credit cards, you know, the economics works. So it's just a cost of doing business for the for the credit card companies, Bruce. One of the things you mentioned you referred to is uh, is uh, I think the Fair Credit Act, the uh, government intervention, government regulation. Um, talk to us a little bit about how government regulation plays a role in security in cybersecurity, because I think it has unintended consequences as a general observation. But in the case of the Digital Markets Act uh, in Europe right now, there's going to be some real consequences for security on messaging interoperability. So basically, the way I think of government intervention is that it sets the playing field on which the market operates, right? So we want a market where buyers compete for seller, sorry, where sellers compete for buyers. Mm -hmm. And in that competition, prices go down, innovation comes up, right? That, that is what we want. At the same time, we want there to be rules. Like we don't want like airlines competing on safety. We want them all to be safe. So we set standards, right? Pajamas can't catch on fire. You're just not allowed to sell pajamas that catch on fire, right? Baby food has to be nutritional. You can't sell crap and call it baby food. Uh, pharmaceuticals can't poison you, right. right? And similarly, we could set rules that say, you know, the routers that you're selling to home users have to have this level of security. Mm -hmm. And And what it does is it stops the the collective action problem in that no one wants to provide better security because we said in the beginning that that you know the the buyers the can't sell the difference yeah. and they're not going to choose the more secure option it's right? like if adding seatbelts in a car right like seatbelts like if we think we think pajamas shouldn't catch on fire we just say make it a rule none of them can 
And that way, nobody advertises like, and this one doesn't catch on fire and charges $20 more and and nobody buys it. So I think there's a real important role for government. And and this gets lost in kind of libertarian nonsense. Mm -hmm. Government can't do any good. The goal of government is to solve collective action problems and to set the rules on which the market operates. And it does that in many industries. Mm. And there's more space to do it in cyberspace. Now, we're seeing some movement. Uh, President Biden's National Cybersecurity Plan unveiled last month talks about a lot of this, mm-hmm. talks about liabilities, talks about standards. It doesn't have any real uh, enforcement power in the moment. I mean, you know, Congress has to act and, you know, we know Congress doesn't actually do anything. So we're going to get there slowly, but that's the way to think of it. But none of this is free. I mean, the real problem is security is expensive and none of us want to pay it. Got it. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, two-factor because you mentioned um, that as one of the ways that your uh, some of the companies you do business with will verify your identity. But I've heard that that's actually... Um, that's quite vulnerable as well, uh, getting a confirmation but, but every, tax done. Yeah, but everything's, everything's quite vulnerable as well. Oh, just see. doing degrees here, right? It's better. Yes, there well, are ways right. to attack two-factor. Okay. And uh, there are ways to attack two-factor over SMS, over text message, that mm-hmm. aren't true if you're doing it in an app. But sometimes it's the best we got. So we're really trying to improve things. Yeah. Are those authentication apps better? You know, like the Google Authenticator, yes. they are better. They are, and the basic reason is SIM swapping. So there is a type of fraud mm-hmm. where I call your, right. I call the phone company, and I pretend to be you, and I got a new phone, and I basically get your identity on my phone. And once I do that, I get your calls and texts. Right. So now I can get those text messages where you get the code you have to type in the website. But if you're using an app like Google Authenticator or Duo, when I cloned your phone, I didn't get those apps. So that is that is safer. Mm. It's a little more annoying, right? You've got to use the yeah, app. It is. But you know, I, I teach at Harvard and we use Duo and it's they make it super easy, right? Mm. You know, you, you log in, you click send me a send me a push, I get a little notice on my phone, I push the green button, suddenly we're in. Yeah. And, yeah, I've and, noticed that with Google as well. With Google now, they'll say just check your Google app and you just open the app and it it authenticates right. you, right? It automatically right. does it. Yeah. And you can set it. So Harvard sets it to, to do that every once a month. So you log in normally with a password, and then every month they require you to do this the second factor. So again, we're playing with security versus usability. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was a bank, maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to do that every time. But for the Harvard network, where it's students and professors, you know, they figure, you know, once a month is a good balance. Yeah, you know, when I make the same decision, I have no idea. How, how That's long? The kind of thing you think about. How long before we can meaningfully get rid of passwords? Because we know they're no longer really safe. The answer is never. Uh, people have been oh, trying for decades. Me. There'll always be a class of authentication where password is the best choice. You don't get rid of them. You just push them down into the less significant. You know, I'm logging into the New York Times. I'm always going to use a password. Because, you know, who cares? It's the New York Times. I'm logging into my bank, kind of never want to use a password because, oh, my God, it's my bank. So the amount of authentication that happens is going to be very varied. 
And hey, something uh, we should talk about after the break is mm-hmm. the notion of thing-to-thing authentication. Because what's going to change in the next couple of years is the rise of things authenticating to other things. And that's a whole separate right. issue. That right. sounds like a great topic. Before we jump into that, you know what we like to do on the show, Bruce, is we like to ask a few short questions uh, just so our audience can get to know you and get to know uh, what how you got formed, how you got shaped as, as you were coming up. So uh, uh, Brett's going to ask you- I never you reveal a- personal information on podcasts. You should know that. <laughs> not this is not social engineering. <laughs> this All is right. in, interest based, unless uh, the security questions you use. Right? What is your mother's maiden name? Yeah. No, your no. first car. <laughs> what are the last four? No. Um, okay, so um, uh, you know, I'm going to adjust this a little bit because we normally uh, uh, focused on the futurist sci-fi element, but I want to I want to tweak it to your expertise. So I can be what futurist. Was, okay, great. All right. Well, then, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or in books, media? So I read a lot of science fiction fantasy uh, as a kid, and I still do. What do I remember early on? Mostly the fantasy series. I remember uh, uh, the Conan series. I remember Moorcock. I remember Tolkien uh, in science fiction, Clark and Heinlein, uh, Asimov, Zelazny. I mean, these are the authors, uh, Larry Niven. Uh, Andre Norton, uh, C.J. Sherry. Yeah. Well, yeah, good collection. Uh, what technology do you believe has most changed humanity? In my lifetime or in general? Just in general. Wow. And probably uh, the printing press changed humanity the most. You know, and that continues today. In a sense, the Internet is just the latest iteration of the printing press. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I would I would even count them as the same, but I think I think communication technologies, the ability right. for humans to coordinate and communicate over time and space, is just is just, is so transformative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Name a futurist or an entrepreneur or specialist in some way that has influenced you, and why. You know, there have been several, and, and I'm not going to be good at names because I tend to be broad and shallow. I read a lot of different people, and I synthesize what they uh, what they say. So I'm not no name comes to mind, but I'm always reading people who are thinking about the future and and their ideas, and and, and I sort of interpret them through my lens, which of course is security. But so no person comes to mind. All right, here's here's one that calls on a bit of a mix of sci-fi and your expertise in security is what science fiction story do you think is best representative of the future of security? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I mean, science fiction never talks about the future. It's kind of a myth. It talks about the present using the future as a foil. Right. You know, I, wow, best represents... You know, I like to think that the stories where security just works, right? The utopias versus the dystopias. So if you think of a Star Trek world, right? There aren't any computer viruses. Yeah, and the right. computers do weird things sometimes, but you know, there are no hackers. It's kind of weird. It's they, also they, true in they Star solve Wars. Security just yeah. like they solved scarcity. And no one knows how. <laughs> but I like that they did. Is that representative? Probably not. I think what we okay. know is that complex socio-technical systems 
are vulnerable. So really the question is, where are they designed where uh, they're resilient? So where is resilience have a play? And I don't think any author has really gotten that right well, because it's such a different world than ours today that you can't yeah. really write about it, either write about the utopia or the dystopia, which are the things we're, we're currently balancing. Right. Which More brings us, you wanted, probably. Right. No, it's fine. Which brings us to AI, quantum and stuff like that, which is what we want to get into after the break. You're listening to The Futurist. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we we have as our guest Bruce Schneier, and uh, we're getting deep into the future of security. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik and my co-host, Brett K. Hey, hey, hey. This week, we're, we're talking back, to yeah. Bruce Schneier uh, from Schneier on Security, a superb website filled with interesting news. His blog is really worth paying attention to if you're interested in the lively topic of security that we're covering I actually today. have that book, too, Schneier on Security. I have it see? up on my bookshelf right here. I don't know if you very, can see it. Very Bruce, proudly. Over there, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have your books as well. And actually, uh, you know what, Bruce? I want to talk to you about your newest book because you've taken the concept that you've been studying for years. Um, this idea of a hacker. And now you're starting to extrapolate from that, it seems to me, in the new book, A Hacker's Mind, uh, where you're talking about the hacker mentality across the board, not necessarily with cybersecurity, but loopholes in the law and so forth. Tell us about The Hacker's Mind. So this is my pandemic project. And what I'm doing is I'm taking the notion of hacking, mm -hmm. which I'm defining as subverting the rules, not breaking the rules, but doing something the system permits, but is unintended and unwanted by the designers, right? So a computer hack, right? The code allows you to do the thing, but it's a bad thing that the programmers didn't want you to do. They just made a mistake. Uh, very similarly, a loophole in the tax code is the same thing. Mm -hmm. right? It is something that the tax code, which is code, is not computer code, but it's code, allows, but the designers of the code, the writers of the law, didn't intend. You found a loophole, you found a mistake, you found a vulnerability, an exploit. And you could think about lots of things as hacks and whether it's Uber hacking various taxi laws to get around the rules or hedge funds hacking different financial laws or taxpayers hacking tax code. These are all hacks. And mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do in the book is to take this very computer idea move it to these social, political, economic systems in a way that helps us think about them. Mm -hmm. I think I did a great job. I really liked writing it. It's fun. I like, I have examples from history, from religion, from social science, from natural science, from uh, airline frequent flyer programs and casino games and sports. 
you know, all ways that rules have been subverted and what the reaction has been. Mm. Yeah, what has it's, happened it's, afterwards. It's good you brought up casino because that was the thing I was thinking of. Uh, casino is very attractive. Obviously, it's where the money is. But it's a rules-based environment, right? Those games have rules that we all think we commonly understand, but there's a certain class of player who has a different take on what those rules permit or what they can get away with in the casino. And the casinos have pretty elaborate systems for tracking that behavior and discovering those people. And card counting is the obvious one? Yeah, right. I mean, you look at the rules of blackjack. Nowhere do the rules say you are not allowed to employ interhand strategy, which is all that card counting is. But of course, card counting is something that is profitable for the uh, player, right? It flips the odds, not very much, but it does flip the odds in the favor of the player. So the casinos like don't want this. So what they do, they can't like ban it because it doesn't make any sense. Hmm. They use their right to expel anyone from the casino for any reason. Now, it's a private property. You are playing in their facility. They can say you are not welcome. You're making too much money out of this. Right? So they have elaborate systems of detecting card counters. And so can you hear the story? I don't know the the MIT card counting story. Right? So detecting card counting. There's a movie about it, right? There's a movie about it. So you detect card counting by looking for certain player behavior. When a player exhibits it, he's obviously counting. And that involves changing your bet when the shoe, the deck of cards, reaches near the end. So that's when there's either advantage or disadvantage. What the MIT group did, it's very clever, is they divided up the roles of card counting among different players. So one player never changed his bet. He just moved from table to table. Someone else never changed their bet. They just did the card counting. Someone else did did something else. And they were able to, basically, they were never discovered. The casino Hmm. couldn't figure out what was happening because it never occurred to them that you could divide the card the card counting strategy among several different people, each of whom's behavior is individually innocuous. Now, Bruce, it seems to me this mentality of hacking the system uh, it has spread. And, and part of the reason I think it's spread is that we've had maybe 15 years of bully boys from Silicon Valley telling us all about disruption, which is really about, you know, hacking the system, right? And and there's great rewards for the companies that have done it. You mentioned Uber. You know, one of Uber's uh, classic things is simply to take on the the mess of local legislation that governs the kind of corrupt, quasi-corrupt uh, taxi cartels and turn it against itself, right? So they, they, they did that in city after city in different ways. Sometimes they got busted, but it was sort of a price of doing business, as you mentioned in the beginning of the show. But now, it seems like that mentality, that kind of like, you know, go disruption mentality has spread everywhere, including a recent president who made his entire career out of hacking the, the law and hacking the justice system and using lawsuits to uh, to punish his enemies and so forth. Um, what's your take on the idea that this is spreading through society and what's that doing to society? Everyone's so a looking for a cheat code. There. Yeah. Uh, so things unpack. One is that hacking is not necessarily bad that hacking is a form of innovation. And, you know, we can look at Uber and dislike the fact that the way they're harming their workers by not classifying them as employees, the way they're harming cities by uh, undermining regulations, it could Airbnb in the same way uh, with uh, hotel regulations. You could also look at Uber as saying what, what you said, the taxi industry is moribund. It is captured by these local cartels 
There's no way to innovate. And taxis are terrible. And Uber fixed a lot of that. Yeah. A taxi driver used to be one of the most dangerous professions in the United States. And now with Uber, because there's surveillance on both sides, because there is a competition for rankings, star rankings on both sides, that they've made taxi driver much, much safer. Hmm. Not entirely safe, but much, much safer. So, right here, Uber is definitely hacking regulations. But whether it's good or bad in the end is not at all obvious. You know, similarly, there are hacks against financial regulations that we might look at and say, that's a good innovation. Hmm. Like a now account or a money market account. These are all hacks. These are all ways for banks to, to give more interest than the law allowed. And they, they created these weird accounts that skirted the rules. You can also look at ways companies are hacking Dodd-Frank to get around uh, right. controls. So hacking is, is that both That worked good out well for Silicon Valley Bank, right? Right. Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank. Well, they got sure they hacked the rules. They just kind of got them changed, which is separate. Uh, the question you're asking is an interesting one. Is hacking more prevalent today? So I think there are several things at play. I think hacking is more common in a low-trust society. If I think you're not paying your fair share of taxes, I am more likely to look for loopholes for myself. Hmm. Right? There's a notion that if someone else is getting away with something, yeah, that's true. you are more okay with getting with trying to get away with something yourself. And that is a robust psychological uh, uh, result. The other thing that's happening is technology is making systems larger and more complex, yeah. which makes them more vulnerable to hacking. And, and our, our legal that, code is like, similar. Yeah. yeah, right. Computer code is similar. So I think those two things are at play. Now, one is cyclical. I think trust in government goes up and down. One seems to be only going in one direction. Complexity mm -hmm. is always increasing. So whether this is a long-term or short-term trend, we will see. But I think you're right that hacking is at least at a local maximum. But certainly you go into history and – Lots of hacking of rules. And then some of my sure. history examples where I enjoy, I have some good examples from the history of religion because religious rules are hacked all the time and, yeah. uh, you know, sort of other laws. This art of understanding the behavioral element of security, um, you know, where does, where does the behavioral psychology and so forth come into systems design versus just purely you know, like the immune system response um, when it comes to security? I think it's real important. And, and there are people who study this. There's the human factors uh, in larger crime. It's called crime science as opposed to criminology. Like criminology studies criminals and what they do. Crime science is the whole ecosystem in which criminals operate. And sometimes your solution is not harsher laws, but to uh, you know, put a put a sign uh, on your gas pump that says you know we have a camera and all drive offs are going to be prosecuted, right? And, you know, and it, it, it's a different solution for a similar problem. So I like looking at incentives. You know, when I teach cybersecurity here at the Kennedy School School of Government, I speak a lot about economic and societal incentives, and that designing for incentives is a much better way of building security than technology that tries to push back against incentives. And so we talked about social security numbers earlier. I mean, the, the, the problem is that a social security number is valuable. The real solution to protecting social security numbers is to make them all public and make that okay. Right, well. Right? I mean, the real problem is it's, it, it's having what, if I have your social security number, 
I can do something yeah. in your stead. Like, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and fixing that is way better than trying desperately to secure these numbers that we're using everywhere. Right, yeah, right, and they exactly. already are everywhere. They're already which, leaked. which brings me sort of to the next topic, which is, um, you know, the the recently we've seen, um, you know, Chinese action uh, with signal intelligence trying to capture, uh, you know, encrypted communications and things like that for the uh, on the basis that they may be able to break this encryption sometime in the future. And one of these the areas that we keep coming up against as, as a potential uh, way to sort of break open a lot of the security we have is quantum computing, right? And uh, this uh, mythology that quantum, once mature, can break any of the existing encryption we're going to have, and we're going to need to use quantum computing to secure you know, our technologies and so forth. Where, where do you sit on this? You know, um, you know, 20 years out with quantum, how is it going to change the security landscape? So not that much. I mean, there's a lot of talk, but in the end, uh, we're going to be okay. So a couple of things you said right, a couple of things you said wrong. Uh, yes, our existing public key algorithms are likely to fall to a quantum computer. So that's not good. NIST, the U uh, U.S. government standards body, is currently having a competition in post-quantum algorithms. The cryptography is going to be well ahead of the physics. So we will get these algorithms well before we're going to need them. So that's good. Uh, the transition is hard. What is called crypto agility, the ability to swap algorithms, we're not very good at. So we got to get better at that in order mm -hmm. to swap from these insecure algorithms to these more secure algorithms. But this is just public key cryptography. Symmetric cryptography is fine. Quantum computers cannot break the current size key lengths and uh, doubling key lengths is easy. So there's no issue there. Uh, at the same time, a lot of our security doesn't use public key at all. You know, right now, the security between your cell phone and the tower is encrypted, and it's not public key encryption. So that's not a, that's not going to be affected. Mm -hmm. So we have a bunch of systems that aren't going to be affected. We have paths of migration, some easier, some harder, to go into quantum resistance. And my guess is that's not going to be much of an issue. And honestly, crypto agility is important in general. Because there are a lot, there you know things break for other reasons than quantum computers. So, so you're talking about point, like yeah. adaptive security systems, adaptive algorithms. But this, well, yeah. I mean, this, this is where AI is is the challenge. Is that AI presumably will be able to adapt in terms of attack vectors as well, right? Yeah, but that's not that's not mathematical attacks. Those are going to be computer attacks. So yes, I think AI will change cybersecurity dramatically, but that is in the sort of the computer attack and defense, not the math attack and defense. Crypt analytics, it's gonna be a long time before an AI can do that because that kind of specialized math is very difficult to train an AI for a lot of reasons that it probably are, are too difficult to get into here. The, the, the back and forth of finding vulnerabilities in code and in launching an attack and a defending, that you know is already being done. So uh, was it yeah. 2016? I think it was. Uh, United States had a uh, DARPA had a capture the flag contest for for AIs. Uh, finals were at DEFCON that year. An AI from Carnegie Mellon won. It's now a commercial product. But there, AIs are attacking each other and defending their networks. You know, as as a exercise in using 
this computer speed attack and defense. Uh, DARPA never repeated that, but China has. Every year, China hosts something called Robot Hacking Games, where they're doing this AI versus AI cyber attack and defense. And guaranteed, they're getting much better at it. We don't know a lot because now the Chinese military runs it. Mm. But you know, surely there are advances in that that are happening in China because of that. So I think that AI will change cybersecurity dramatically, but it's not going to be in the cryptography area. It's going to be in this this more hacking area. So systemically, just just out of interest, you know, where do you rank China versus, say, the U.S. and the EU in in terms of their, you know, security responsiveness these days? Systemically, you know, it's hard to know. The uh, a lot of a lot of that is classified. A lot of that we don't have access to. A lot of it is is things countries have and they're they're keeping in their back pocket. And so, I mean, I know there are efforts to try to rank countries in terms of their cyber capabilities. I think they're all making it up. Right. I don't think anybody has enough actual data to produce that kind of ranking. So whenever I see those rankings, I'm always very skeptical. Yeah, Harvard here, we, we produce one. And it just feels like you're just making this stuff up. You're you're hmm. you're you're basing it on on guesswork, on stuff in the press. Since when is like you know stuff that's in the news is stuff you got wrong? It's like the CIA. If, if something is in the news, they made a mistake. You can't hmm. you can't rate the CIA based on what's in the news. That's the exact opposite of how to how to rate. Them. Bruce, let me redirect to AI because I have a related question, uh, which is that. Um, we're beginning to delegate more and more um, authority to machines. We're beginning to delegate more and more to autonomous systems. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Tesla's uh, you know, autopilot uh, in their car, though that's one example of that. Earlier, we talked about Internet of Things. You know, these are systems that we set up and we kind of forget about and they're running in the background and we don't update them or patch them. But now increasingly, we're going to have autonomous systems. And, and as we were talking about the military just a moment ago, it occurred to me that the next big war will probably be a war fought between robots. Now, the minute we delegate to a machine, we're creating a whole range of vulnerabilities. Can you talk a little bit about machine-to-machine or thing-to-thing security? So I think this is something that's going to be a big issue moving forward. This is 5G. 5G is not about you watching Netflix faster. 5G is about things talking to other things behind your back. And right, they're going to be doing things. They're going to be sensing, thinking, and acting. They're going to be sensing the world making decisions and acting on them. And that could be a driverless car. That could be your thermostat. That could be a city's power grid. That could be a national defense system, right? So- This is what we frame as agency, right? AI-based agency. Right, I think of it as as physical, but physical agency, agency in the real world. Like my thermostat at home turns my heater on and off. Now, I'm fine with that, right? I mean, it can do that by itself. I don't need to to monitor it. But you know, if it's if it's deciding whether to break my car, that's a different thing. Uh, there are authentication issues, right? We talked about in our first half, where we really don't know how to do thing to thing authentication at scale. So mm-hmm. imagine a driverless car or some kind of computer assisted driving car. We'll have to authenticate to two thousand of other cars and traffic signals and road signs and emergency alerts, all in real time, all ad hoc. We have no idea how to do that. 
Now, and more importantly, we don't know if we can trust that signal, right? So we might. But, think but that's the point, right? I mean, the, you have to be able to trust it because yeah. what we want is like the car three ahead to announce that I'm braking, so that I and the car three back know it before the brake lights go on. I mean, there's there's this promise that we could synchronize communication between vehicles. We could have much tighter. Mm -hmm. uh, traffic going much faster because you don't need human reaction time. Right? The, the whole network now knows that we're going fast. There was an accident. We have to break. We have to route. All those things. And that requires, right, authentication. Do we know these signals are real? Mm -hmm. Lots of issues there. So, you know, whether things make autonomous decisions depends a lot. Right? I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm okay with a computer that tells me how many, you know, what I owe in taxes, if my tax return is simple. I'm not okay if it's complicated. Right? I'm fine if a computer, you know, we would have chat GPT hooked into uh open table, if it recommends a restaurant for me, that sounds okay. Uh, you know, but what if the computer, like in charge of the US foreign policy, says like you need to invade Russia today? Can't tell you why, because we're a black box, unexplainable, but you really need to invade Russia today. Are we okay with that? Probably not. And probably not for a long time. So this is going to be an interesting bunch of years. As you say, these systems start moving into more aspects of our life. And we yeah. figure out, yeah, an AI reading an x-ray, being a radiologist, that's good. An AI making a bail and parole decision, that's bad. Well, and, and it seems to me we're going to have like a cascade of different systems that rely upon each other. So it's not just the cars talking to the cars, but it's also the traffic lights and the city systems and emergency right. signals and so on. Yep. yep. And and if the, just one of those is vulnerable, then a malicious hacker could shut the whole system down or create a kind of cascading effect of accidents or something. That's a scary scenario. Well, that's the idea. That's where I mentioned resilience, you know, uh, sometime earlier, that we need our system to be more resilient. Because that is a critical failure that comes from systems being fragile, from a failure in one thing cascading to multiple things. Now, if earlier, want, we, like, if we your car security a, fails, you want it just to stop and not speed up. In an earlier episode, we interviewed um, Brad Templeton, who talked about autonomous vehicles in a very fun and interesting way. And Yeah, Brad's uh, great on that issue. He is great. On, he's very passionate about it and very lively. Uh, one of the things we talked about was whether those uh, should be connected uh, autonomous vehicles or whether they should be self-contained. And his feeling was very much important. He said it's very important that each car is going to be self-contained, that it has sufficient computing power uh, to be autonomous on, on the car. Yeah, we also know that those cars are gathering tons of data, right? They're collecting uh, very, very precise data that could be usefully shared such that you could have like a city scale model, uh, like a real time model of what's happening in the city from the perspective of, of thousands or maybe a million cars. Um, but his perspective, he was very, very uh, pessimistic about the, the reliability of that system, of the communication. What's your perspective on that? I mean, that strikes me as a vulnerability. These systems do need to communicate and they have to send messages back and forth. I mean, it's a vulnerability. It's also how they work. So I mean, welcome to the internet. It's a vulnerability, but it's how we do everything we do. Uh, I don't think they're going to be self-contained. I think we got robots wrong in science fiction, getting back to one of the earlier questions. Now, we kind of think of a robot as a thing with the, you know, the, with the brain in the middle, with sensors and actuators on the edges, 
and some kind of shell to protect it from the rest of the world. That's not the way robots work. You know, nowadays, your robot will have sensors around the environment, actuators around the environment. The smarts are probably in the cloud. Right. There isn't right. a thing. It's not like R2-D2 or data. Right. It's not an object. It, yeah, is it doesn't have a positronic matrix. Yeah, yeah so I, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be the car that is going to be the robot. I think the system of cars mm-hmm. together is going to be the robot. Makes and sense. All the cars together will decide. We're going to brake. We're going to go. Mm-hmm. We're going to make a left turn. Uh, all the cars and the roads and the sensors. So the sensors that the car is going to use, some of them are not going to be in the car. They're going to be on the road because it's better to have them there. And the car just car just borrows them as it drives by. So this notion of 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 robotics as these uh, these units. I think is not the way it's going to go. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes sense, particularly systems. particularly in a big city. Imagine when your car, you know, when you're in in the not too distant future, when there's a lot of autonomous vehicles in a big city like Los Angeles or Chicago, you can imagine that at that point the city is going to need to take over the management of the vehicle. Right. Yes, absolutely. Just like you know, air traffic control, when you're flying right. into a region, air traffic control says, "Okay, we're taking over the direction of this flight at this point." You know, and they start to issue commands to the pilot. Uh, yeah, and the, the car might still retain uh, limited autonomy around that particular vehicle braking and so forth. But you can imagine that the city will say, okay, everybody's passing through to San Diego. We're going to put you in the left lane so you can go fast. Everybody's exiting. We're going to move you over to the right. It just makes sense to me uh, versus the chaos of a million. Well, it's it's, it's resource decisions. management as, you know, like that's the function of government. And, you know, as you start thinking about traffic movement, if you start tra- thinking about delivery and so forth, it's all resource management, which right. is where AI is going to be hugely transformative for yeah. the way we think about governance. You know, but that creates a huge that. dependency then on a good solid AI that we can rely upon or a network yep. of AIs that we can trust. And so we're right back. And, to our and good policy this. setting. Right. <laughs> that's right. So... Uh, Bruce, um, you know, as we wrap up the show, we like to get a bit sci-fi. Um, you know, obviously we are the futurists. So, uh, you know, looking 20 to 30 years out, what's the security landscape look like and what are you optimistic about? So 20, 30 years is hard. And you know this if you do, you know, any kind sure. of futurology. We're really good the next few years. We're terrible further out. And basically we tend to be good at predicting technical trends, but a terrible at predicting social changes due to technology, right? So we can predict that, you know, cars will allow people to go faster, but no one predicts like the modern suburb. And we can predict that you can buy and sell things on the internet. Internet makes buying and selling easier, but no one predicts eBay, right? So those, so I think there is a blind spot because we only see society in terms of our societal norms so we project future technology onto our society, which is why like Star Trek is so weird. Right? It's super future tech, but it's current social problems. So I just don't think you can do that kind of futurology. I would like to see the attack defense arms race solved, right? The notion that Every attack, every defense, every attack, every defense is a red queen's race, and you you never get better even as you uh, as you improve. I'd like there to be some way out of that. It is not obvious that that is going to be true forever. 
and only true today. That will make an enormous difference. That will allow us to build systems for that do good without worrying about the bad that comes with it, which is really what this whole whole show right. has been about. Is that likely? I don't know. I mean, I, I the, the math of cryptography is not going anywhere. My, you know, the, the uh, I have an essay called Cryptography After the Aliens Land, where I talk about far future possibilities. We're still going to have secure messaging. But all everything else is kind of up for grabs. I think AI is going to change things more than anybody thinks, even those who think it's going to change everything. I don't think we have any idea. And the analogies of that, you know, the early days of the steam engine, yes, yes, to predict what the future will look like in 30 years, you have no idea. And if you do, you just get it completely wrong. So the idea of having non-human decision makers in our mists that in a lot of ways better than us as decision makers, it's going to be really interesting yeah. to watch. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I just read The Age of AI, with, you know, from Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger and put the other the guy. But um really emphasizes that particularly that we're already seeing ai logic you know uh, come up with different results from the way humans uh, operate and and better as as you say so the more reliant we become on that the the less it follows human logic right right i mean and they think differently than humans they come up with solutions that humans don't think about yeah and which is why this whole explanation issue is a problem because they really can't explain their stuff because they're not yeah. explanations are human shorthand. So yeah, yeah we're not great hard. at explaining our decisions either. Oh, we're terrible at it. Congress. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, Absolutely. Bruce, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, for those who are listening, our guest this week is Bruce Schneier, and he is the uh, author of a, a terrific book, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. A very playful idea uh, to take your your expertise on on cybersecurity and extend it out to the real world, all the other code-based systems that govern the way society works. You can check him out on the web at Schneier on Security, his his blog, which is prolific and filled with interesting things, many of which he shared today. Uh, Where else can people find you on the web? Honestly, that's the only place. I don't tweet. I don't Facebook. I don't LinkedIn. I don't Instagram. I don't WhatsApp. I don't, uh, whatever else, TikTok, whatever else kids do these days makes me a freak, but highly productive. So schneier.com is my website. That's where everything is. Super. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Bruce. All right, that's it for this week's show. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a, a five-star review on your platform of choice. Tweet us out. Um, you know, there are still people that do do use Twitter, even though Bruce does it, doesn't. Um, so post about it. Uh, tell your friends, uh, all of that. And let us know who else you'd like to see on The Futurist. We've been having some stellar guests lately, but uh, tell us which areas you're interested in. Uh, our thanks go out to the Provoke team for their work uh, on uh, producing the show each week, uh, particularly to Kevin Hersham, our uh, audio engineer, Elizabeth Severins, our producer, uh, Carlo, Sylvie, and the whole rest of the team. That's it for the Futurists this week, but you can rest assured that we will see you again in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for the Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. 
Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.